I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil, no demon inch inch, or lich or shadow terror, which I could not control fascination attending in his brain. He it is thoroughly known by few. But it's and never the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel pollution, a foulness beyond the black leprosy of hell, had gone forth and I could bear it no more. Men to chase a noble stag in the nearby forest, overtaking horse and rider, he caught them with one hand, dreaming of conquest and of vast romances. They were people, mostly priests and women, it is told, me picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The double shadow. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering The Disinterment of Venus. It's our 10th episode. That's exciting. It's really exciting. 10 episodes. How do you guys feel looking back now on nine uh, <laughs> completely successful episodes without a single mistake ever once? feel pretty good about it. <laughs> it's like A pluses. <laughs> uh, so we have forums now. We do we have We talked forums. about it last time, but we should bring it up again because yeah. you should join them and speak to us. Yeah, talk to us on our And forums. talk to the other people who are listening to this. If you send him personal messages that are of a romantic nature, he will respond. I will. With uh, enthusiasm. <laughs> I need to try this. There may be a short delay after sign up because I approve the accounts manually, ideally to avoid spam. If you pick a really spammy looking name, it might not get approved, in which case shoot me an email. A lot of insightful discussions going on. So come on. What are you waiting for? Join now. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> free. 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 So the disinterment of Venus first appeared in the July 1934 issue of Weird Tales alongside Through the Gates of the Silver Key by H.P. Lovecraft and E. Hoffman Price and other stories, of course. Uh, I'm obsessed with the idea that there exists, I mean, I could clearly easily research this, but I'm obsessed <laughs> with the idea that there exists a perfect issue of 1930s Weird oh, Tales yeah. that has a classic story by... Uh, Lovecraft by Howard, by Clark, and probably by, you know, some other uh, early figures. Nard Jones. you got to get a Nard Jones original, yeah. otherwise it's not a Nard Jones. I guess we should also point out this is the first Averone story that appeared after Clauses of Your and so we're now back into the proper continuity. Okay. So, Good. Clauses of Your would have come between two. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> the story was heavily revised four times before being accepted by Weird Tales. Barnsworth Wright objected to its Saturiasis, which is the word for male nymphomania, I had no idea. There's a word and it's a thing, and it's definitely in this. Although it's funny, like when you when you read the letters between Lovecraft and, and um, CAS, they make fun of Farnsworth Wright being. They both do Lovecraft too, I think. Make fun of uh, Wright for being uh, for objecting to sexual content in the stories, right? And they always point out just how sexualized the covers of Weird Tales right. were, mm-hmm. which is totally true. Like those. Covers are uh, salacious and awesome, but like they uh, had a very valid point about the hypocrisy of the magazine. Prior to certain highly deplorable and scandalous events in the year 1550, the vegetable garden of Paragon was situated on the southeast side of the abbey. After these events, it was removed to the northwest side, where it has remained ever since and the former garden site was given to weeds and briars which, 
By strict order of the successive abbots, no one has ever tried to eradicate or curb. The happenings which compelled this removal of the Benedictines turnip and carrot patches became a popular tale in Averon. It is hard to say how much or how little of the legend is apocryphal. So what I like about the opening of this story is that its stakes are about as minuscule as you could possibly imagine <laughs> right. for a story. Like, we're literally talking about a turnip patch here, um, which is awesome, especially when you take in consideration the last story was about the Colossus of Ulorin, and right. now suddenly we're, we're concerned with where they're, where they're uh, planting their <laughs> carrot patch. And this is our third story at Paragon, and of it, definitely the lowest stakes. We've had previously... Um, People being young men being tempted off to their deaths. Yeah. Although, well, well, talk more about that later. We have that, and then we have Beast, where this thing that turns out to be coming out of Paragon is uh, roaming the countryside and killing all these people. Mm-hmm. And so now we have Turnip Patch. Yep. <laughs> and this is our latest Averonian date, yeah. except for end of the story. Right. We're in mm-hmm. the 16th century now. So we've, we've moved forward in time. How does our story start in proper? Well... What happened? Why did, they have to, why did they have to move their vegetables? Well, three young monks one day went out um, doing their usual work, digging up in the vegetable garden. I'm not sure why they were digging quite so deep, but they were putting they were their digging, backs into it. Because they were digging lustily. They were yeah, digging let's lustily. Actually, let's talk about this paragraph. It's awesome. Yeah. They weren't just doing their work. They were spading lustily. Like, I love that the story instantly is like, this story is about sex. <laughs> Yeah, like, even they're spading, like yep. it's it's funny. Being moved with an especial ardor in which the vernal yeah. stirring of youthful sap may have played its part. Hughes. Oh yeah, so what are the names of our, our guys? So we've got Paul, Pierre, and Hugh. The first was a man of ripe years, hale and robust. The second was in his early prime. The third was little more than a boy, but had recently taken his vows. So we've got old, middle, and young. All and lustily all spading. Yep. Lustily spading at that vegetable patch. And Hugh, being the most young and strong of them all, just goes nuts with his shovel. And so he finds something there and he thinks, oh, you know, is it a rock? Is it whatever it is? I'm going to dig it up, get it out so that we have the best vegetable patch ever. Then the other monks come by and help him because they see it's like there's a pedestal or something. And so they start digging. They find something which indicates perhaps that Paragon had been a site of worship since before the Christians came to Averon. That's that's really, I, I, I don't know, it gives me pause because I hadn't even realized that implication. But like, that's totally, like, that's why totally is there the a Venus buried under, yeah, under yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Clearly there was something there before, and maybe they yeah, knocked so it down and then built the abbey on top. Isn't it Paragon also an end of the story, or no? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In the large pit they had now dug, the monks beheld the grimy head and torso of what was plainly a marble woman or goddess from antique years. The pale stone of shoulders and arms, tinged faintly as if with a living rose, had been scraped clean in places by their shovels, but the face and breasts were still black with heavily caked loam. The figure stood erect, as if on a hidden pedestal. One arm was raised, caressing with a shapely hand the ripe contour of shoulder and bosom. The other, hanging idly, was still plunged in the earth. So they find a statue of a naked woman. What is the immediate effect of finding this? They, uh, They're super excited about it. In fact, are they instantly super excited? The brothers had felt a strange, powerful excitement whose cause mm-hmm. they could hardly have explained. 
There was an unacknowledged pleasure which the three would have rebuked in themselves as vile and shameful if they had recognized it. And on the surface, they have this pious horror which they're supposed to feel about both pagans and nudes. And when they uncover it properly, they realize that it is, in fact, um, a Venus. So, well, actually, yeah, they, they discover it's a Venus, but they, we have this little note about them. Um, they're not unaware of what it is. Which is interesting. Like, it says they're not without classic learning. Right. So it's not like they are unaware of the the implication of it, I guess. The vicissitudes of half-legendary time, the long, dark years of inhumation, had harmed the Venus little, if at all. The slight mutilation of an ear tip, half-hidden by rippling curls, and the partial fracture of a shapely middle toe merely served to add, if possible, a keener seduction to her languorous beauty. She was exquisite as the succubi of youthful dreams, but her perfection was touched with an inenarrable evil. The lines of the mature figure were fraught with a maddening luxuriousness. The lips of the full, Circerian face were half-pouting, half-smiling with ambiguous allure. It was the masterpiece of an unknown, decadent sculptor. Not the noble, maternal Venus of heroic times, but the sly and cruelly voluptuous Cytherian of dark orgies, ready for her descent into the hollow hill. So what does that mean, Cytherian? I want to talk about this phrase specifically, because if you compare an unpublished version of the story, this phrase is slightly different in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Nightshade edition, I don't know what draft they pulled this from, that line reads... Not the noble maternal Venus of heroic times, but the sly and voluptuous Cotitio, Cotito, huh. the Cytherian of dark orgies. That is a reference to a goddess who is not actually Venus. Cotito, or, or Cotis, is a um, different female goddess, but a goddess of unchastity, quote-unquote. Mm. Uh, and her worship included midnight orgies, and her name actually means war or slaughter. Wow. And there's a lot that's fascinating about her. Like, the internet doesn't know much about her, um, but what it does know is really interesting. I mean, aside from the orgies and the war and the slaughter, uh, her followers were called um, Baptio, which is the same root as baptism, because they would undergo extensive cleansing rites. Mm. Um which is kind of fascinating. I'm, I'm kind of sad that reference is taken out of the story because it really complicates, oh. and it complicates even the name of the story. Like, is this a Venus right. or is it uh, some other goddess that is that is similar to Venus but has a, a much darker undercurrent? Right. I Maybe. wonder if that's Farnsworth Wright right there who right. looked it up that's and true. said, nope, <laughs> yeah. too no lusty, dark orgies. <laughs> no orgies. I mean, although she was clearly of dark orgies. What's this descent into the hollow hill? What is that reference? What's the I, hollow hill? I have no idea. Yeah. I tried to look it up. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I tried, but I mean, a hollow hill is a hard phrase to, to yeah, right. it's pretty, um, I, it's, it's I, pretty broad. I wonder if it, it has something to do with Hades or, cause yeah. don't you, isn't it like a physical location that you go to, but it might not have anything to do with that. Or in the end of the story, we learned that, um, that the things in nowadays have retreated underground. Right. So yeah, that's like true. That too. I like this whole phrase, this whole segment, just because of the picturing, the scene is interesting to me, like this deep, deep hole in the middle of this turnip patch yeah. that has this amazingly erotic statue in it, I think is just kind of an interesting image. And it's not like, it's funny, there are a lot of good details that are in the version that's not published. Uh, they talk about how just the head is sort of like peeking above the pit. Right. Um, which is kind of like, it's cool. I don't know, it's, it's a cool mm-hmm. image that was taken out. Well, they call the abbot. He comes by and... He's trying to figure out what to do about it. He inspects it, and it's not like 
it's not like it's their fault for finding it, but he's come somewhat discomfited by it. So he directs them to raise her out of the hole and a bunch of them do that. And then they all start inspecting her more closely and some of them start, um, Touching start touching it. her, <laughs> which gets really awkward and yeah. they're, they're reprimanded they for it. It's like they can't at. help wanting to touch her. Right. But even um, Augustine, the abbot, he knows he should destroy it. This is a yes. pagan idol. It should be destroyed. But there's something there that stops him from doing it. And then one of the other monks is like, maybe we can sell it because it's obviously of, a, of great worth. So maybe we can sell it and use that money for the, uh, the abbey. They hit on the idea of just leaving it there and figuring out who to sell it to. But first, let's cover her up, boys. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally true. So they put sackcloth on her to cover up her naughtier bits, like her uncovered breasts and such. And then... He says, if you're not supposed to be near her, don't go in the garden. I don't want you guys just like standing around, staring at her. <laughs> this story has so many monk boners in it. It's so many crazy. monk boners. Yeah. In I fact, I- we can assume all of them except for maybe one, which we'll get mm-hmm. to later. Um, so he goes on to state specifically that generally the Abbey of Paragon, everybody's very well behaved. You know, they keep to their their monkly duties but now it's like animal house in there like something has gone horribly wrong yeah there's a spirit of unruliness going on in the abbey of paragon now impiety rivalry and wrongdoing wrongdoing (laughs) paul pierre and hugh were the first to undergo penance for their peccancies a shocked dean had overheard them discussing with impure levity certain matters that were more suitable for the conversation of worldly gallants than of monks. By way of extenuation, the three brothers pleaded that they had been obsessed with carnal thoughts and images ever since their exhumation of the Venus, and for this they blamed the statues, saying that a pagan witchcraft had come upon them from its flesh-white marble. On that same day, others of the monks were charged with similar offenses and still others made confession of lubric desires and visions such as had tormented Anthony during his desert vigil. Those, too, were prone to blame the Venus. Before Evensong, many infractions of monastic rule were reported, and some of them were of such nature as to call for the severest rebuke and penance. Brothers whose conduct had heretofore been exemplary in all ways were found guilty of transgressions such as could be accounted for only by the direct influence of Satan or some powerful demon. Worst of all, on that very night, it was found that Hugh and Paul were absent from their beds in the dormitory, and no one could say whither they had gone. They did not return on the day following. Inquiries were made by the abbot's order in the neighboring village of San Zanobi and it was learned that Paul and Hugh had spent the night at a tavern of unseemly repute, drinking and wenching, and that they had taken the road to Vion, the chief city of the province, at early dawn. Later they were apprehended and brought back to the monastery, protesting that their downfall was wholly due to some evil contagion which they had incurred by touching the statue. And there's talk of further madness of the Venus changing her position and dropping off the sackcloth to be like, oh, hi. Right. Did you see this? <laughs> but doesn't doesn't she just drop it so that you can only see like a shoulder or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's just like like peeking out a shoulder. Yeah. She's she's very coy this one. Yeah, so something crazy is going on with this statue, and it's affecting the monks. And it's right away. It's not like a slow seeping mm-hmm. thing. Just right away, everything goes completely nuts. All of this stuff is going on, and there's only 
one brother, a young brother, a youth of good family who has been unaffected. He's been hanging out in the library, copying a Latin testament. The narrator actually describes this monk. He was conspicuous among the Benedictines for his comely face and his austere piety. Handsome as Adonis, he was given to aesthetic vigils and prolonged devotions, outdoing in this regard the abbot and the dean. So this is he's like super monk. He looks like a supermodel and he's the most pious one of all. And he hears about the Venus and says, nope, no, 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 no. Not looking at it, not touching it, not going out to see it. If I walk by a window, I'm going to shield my eyes. Yep. But he feels this evil presence and he feels like he has to do something about it. Because he's the only one who sees, he sees himself as being the only one who's not affected. So it's his job to clean up the monastery. One morning there is extreme surprise and alarm when on the fourth day after the exhumation of the statue, the super monk, Brother Louis, is discovered to be missing. His bed hasn't been slept in and it seems impossible that he could have fled the monastery. So everyone is like, where is Louis? What is going on? Why is and, there a missing hammer? Yeah, right. Why is this yeah. hammer missing? The last time anybody saw him, he was in the workshop. Yeah. The monk in charge of the smithy, once questioned, found out that his heaviest hammer had been removed. Which makes everybody say, what? Because Louis is not one of the smithy kind of monks. He's you know the educated kind of monk. They do all come to the same conclusion, which is that Louis impelled quote-unquote, by his virtuous ardor and holy wrath, took the hammer and then snuck into the garden to demolish the Venus. So they all rush to the garden. And they're met by the gardeners who have noticed that their sex object is missing. Yeah, and they didn't think to mention it until now. (laughs) So they rush to the pit. How they rush to the pit is funny because it's like a bunch of scared monks approaching a hole in a turnip garden. Uh, the exact the exact phrasing is made bold by their numbers and by the leadership of Augustine, the assembled monks approach the pit, which I just think is really funny because it is, I mean, again, this statue hasn't been like sucking anybody's blood. Right. It just makes them have carnal desires. Yeah. And yet they're still, they need like 20 monks led by their fearless leader to approach a hole in their garden. Yeah. I think it's really funny. So you just have, um, I have this picture of like a cluster of monks all moving as one really slowly, <laughs> all peeking over each other's shoulders to see what's going on. So they see the hammer laying on the, at the edge of the pit. So they go and they look over into the pit. Somehow, the Venus had been overturned and had fallen back into the broad, deep pit. The body of Brother Louis, with a shattered skull and lips bruised to a sanguine pulp, was lying crushed beneath her marble breasts. His arms were clasped about her in a desperate, lover-like embrace, to which death had now added its own rigidity. Even more horrible and inexplicable, however, was the fact that the stone arms of the Venus had changed their posture and were now folded closely about the dead monk as if she had been sculptured in the attitude of an amorous enlacement. So that's pretty creepy. It is, yeah. They feel both horror and consternation, which is very monkly of them. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Oh my god, I'm horrified. But Louis, what were you doing? Right. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> I love the the detail that his um his lips were bruised to a sanguine yeah. pulp, as if yeah. he was like furiously kissing the statue and yeah. tearing his lips up. And the monks they can't get him out. Yeah, they, they try can't to uh, get her arms off of yeah. him. They can't get him out of her embrace. And so they just bury him there, Venus and Louis. And they have this great moment there where they try to um, 
they try to rationalize that he was still doing the right thing, which he was, but they mm-hmm. like they take the hammer as being proof right. that he was there with righteous intention. But then they also are like, oh, but it's pretty clear that he totally succumbed to her quote-unquote hellish charms. They, as we said, they bury him, which is pretty upsetting. And then they, they bless the spot, right? They, so they that he doesn't have an unconsecrated grave, right. I think. And also yeah, to yeah. keep the Venus in. And this is why, to return to the opening phrase, this is why they move their turnip garden. Yep. <laughs> the end. <laughs> which is... A- <laughs> <laughs> no more digging there for anybody. A pretty awesome uh, backstory to like what could be a very boring story. Like, well, that garden wasn't getting enough sun. Right. Uh, turnips need more sun, so we moved it over there. Right? No, no. Actually, we found a pagan uh, orgy goddess, and uh, she pulped the lips of one of our monks, so we had to move the turnips. Right. <laughs> and you could just imagine like why this story is being told. Like somebody's visiting the monastery and he's like, oh, yeah. I've noticed that you have a patch of overgrown. Why, you could make that a garden. Oh, that used <laughs> to be a garden. Let me tell you what happened. So Phil, uh, tell us about the nightshade. Yeah. The nightshade version, aside from the few, from a couple of different phrasings and details, like we pointed out as we were going through the story, takes us into the perspective of Louis as he's going out to the garden to destroy the statue, which is something that I really miss actually in the Elder's Dark version. It's creepy th- to be in his perspective and it's interesting to sort of be in the mind of this monk as he gets seduced by the statue. How does it happen? Uh, okay, so it happens like this. Like a lot of Smith's stories that are edited for publication, he seems to have, if the Nightshade editions are to be believed, lo- really loves to break his stories into like many chapters. So this story in, in the Nightshade edition is broken into four parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third part takes us into Brother Louis' perspective. Um, and a lot of the language is the same. Like, they still talk about him being a brother of a, of a good family, conspicuous for being so virtuous. And then you learn, I mean, you sort of like, you have phrases like brooding deeply as he went about his daily toils and devotions, where he confided this intention, his intention to destroy the statue to no one. Wild whispers were circulating among the monks, and it was said that several others besides the eight culprits had been drawn to touch the sorcerer's marble in secret. So he's sort of like, there's just a better build to his decision to do this thing, because you understand that he... We understand a little bit more that he's worried for his fellow monks and he's worried about his, you know, his whole monastery. Oh, there's this great detail about how the, the ground around the statue is soft, so his feet kind of, like, sink into the ground as he gets closer to her. He sort of lifts the statue up and stares at her, and then, um, in so doing, he forgets his wrath and his purpose, his fear and his horror, and his cenobitic vows. Wow. Which... As a Clyde Barker fan, yeah. I had no idea that Cenobitic was what you call the vows of chastity and asceticism. Uh, and Cenobites are, of course, what Pinhead is. And then he like drops the hammer and it says, bathed in a perilous light and swathed with luring shadows, the Venus appeared to live and palpitate, to lift calmly hands that implored his mercy, to open fair eyes and delicious lips that claimed his love. An unleashed delirium, sudden and irresistible, sang triumphantly in his brain, exulted madly in his blood. Stepping across the forgotten hammer, he embraced the Venus. Her arms and bosom were cool as marble to his feverish touch, but they seemed to offer the firm softness and resilience of living flesh. And then it cuts to the next part, and they discover that he's missing. Wow, that is pretty it's cool. Better, it's better than the published version. The Nightshade version also like sort of goes into a little more detail about what the other monks were doing, and like when they left, like the wenching they do, right. and those kinds of things. 
it's just it's a better version. And I think Farnsworth Wright had wanted to cut that out because when you think about that, that's a nice seduction scene right there. I, I'm guessing he didn't want to publish it, especially with him being a monk. Well, this is my question about this story. Like, what do you think the tone of this story is? And what do you think the narrator thinks of these monks? Because the word evil gets dropped into this story a lot. And I would make the case probably poorly that I think the word evil is being used with some kind of irony, because I don't actually think that this statue is necessarily evil. Right. Um, no, I think we could assume that the narrator is a monk. So, of course... Uh, of, yeah. That would be one option. Yeah, of yeah. course the the actions of this Venus would be evil, because sex is evil. <laughs> They've taken <laughs> cenobitic vows. <laughs> cenobitic is such a good word. Yeah. I see this as part of the, the Averon struggle between the old and the, right. the Christian, and also highlighting the weakness of of the monastic order in Averon and of the church in Averon. So that all it takes is one statue of Venus, one lusty statue, and suddenly they forget that they're monks. Right. It's another one of those stories where like like we know, I think, pretty clearly that Clark Ashton Smith, let's not call Clark Ashton Smith the narrative of the story, but the author right. Clark Ashton Smith comes down on this conflict between the old and the new on the side of the old. Yes. Which is why the tone of the story, I think, is interesting because he keeps calling this thing evil. And I don't think that Clark Ashton Smith would view a sexy statue of Venus to be evil, which is why I am curious about the tone of the story and like what it is after. And I don't know that I have a good answer. I have this sort of this thought of it as a, um, there's this famous essay called The Return of the Repressed that's all about horror and, uh, in film, um, and the case is sort of about how many horror films can be read as uh, like a return of the sort of Freudian repressed, mm-hmm. and this feels very much in that vein of of a story about people who have repressed a a intrinsic part of their humanity, like their sexuality, and then in being confronted with it, it drives them to extremes. And again, it's, this isn't a horror story, so it's not like they go out and rape anybody or do anything really truly horrible, but it is. Um, it still is about them confronting something that they have been trying to ignore about right. themselves. Right. Um, and it comes right into their house. Uh, it's kind of like Rawhead Rex, actually, speaking mm, of, Yes. Speaking of things. You're right. And I just read that this week. I've actually never read it, I don't think. You've but seen I saw the, the film. Movie and it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Dudes, it's in the book you lent me. Yeah, I know. I uh, apparently haven't read the entirety of the Books of Blood, so... Uh, yeah, but it is very much except that Rawhead Rex is much more uh, has much more agency. He does. Well, he. I mean, he he's like he's like the monstrous male sexuality instead of mm-hmm. the. Uh, I, and I hesitate to call this monstrous female sexuality, but let's just call it like powerful female sexuality. Yeah, I guess definitely. It's not necessarily saying she's evil, but the, the fear, the masculine fear of the, Although, the sexual female. Yeah, but Tim, you like Ellen Moore should start worshiping the uh, goddess of unchastity, war, midnight orgies, and baptisms. I should. I think. I think I will. Starting now. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I am now a priest of Kautiyatoto. I, I like the story. It seems like a little bit of a lark to me, but it's uh, it's a fun lark. Yeah, it is fun. I don't love it. It's not in my top five, but it is fun. Yeah, I like it as a little bit of backstory to Paragon. I feel like we're getting a really good picture of the Abbey on the whole. And it's mysterious. Like it, it's it's a weird um, it's a weird story, and it doesn't offer us answers. It's funny. The one image that I like that I don't think is in the Nightshade, but is in the published version, is this idea of her 
wandering around the garden at night. Right. Which I think is really kind of, it's not like super horrific, but it's unsettling. It's creepy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's creepy. That's the disinterment of Venus, folks. Tell us what you think about it on our forums. What's our next episode going to be? I'm so... Is oh. it Mother of Toads? Mother of Toads. Mother of Toads. Oh, yeah, we're right geez. in the thick of yep. the Averone sex stories. And they, I think they culminate next week with... Uh, or next time with Mother of Toads. Yeah, and you know, the next three really are all sex stories. Yeah. yeah. What are, what are the, what's after... Uh, Enchantress of Solaire. So again... Oh, and, then, and then the Saturn. Kind of a sex right? story. And then the Saturn, yeah. And then we're done with Averone. Oh, oh so sad. It's going to be sad. This is what's going to be sad. When two stories into Hyperborea, we've all forgotten about Averon because let's kind of be a little bit honest. Yeah. Those stories are probably better than the Averon stories. But I love Averon. I love it too. It's a my heart now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to be sad because Zothique's going to come around and we're going to be like, oh, yes. <laughs> Join us next time when we read the sexiest of the Averon stories, <laughs> Mother of Toads. Oh, I can't wait. Yep. Double Shadow has a perfect record <laughs> of episodes. Certain members of the extreme left media have been insulting the Double Shadow. Do you believe the Double Shadow is still the best thing to listen to on your way to work, class, or just for recreation?